You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We will bow together before we begin. Gracious Father, we again give you our thanks that you have given to us your word. It is the instrument by which the Spirit of God equips us and encourages us for for service and ministry and life. You use it to sanctify us by the truth, which your word is the truth. And we are grateful that we can come together and and gather around your word and, and hear from you in the pages of Scripture. It is inspired and infallible and inerrant, and we need nothing else but your word and your word alone to give us a revelation of you and what you have done for us and what you expect from us. And so we pray that you would bless our time and our study, our meditation here. May it be pleasing in your sight, and may you be glorified through it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we begin, we're back in John chapter 17. It was a, a couple of weeks ago that I was I was here, so I want to thank Dave for filling in for me while I was gone. We were up in Canada visiting some, well, visiting my in-laws for a family reunion and I would have rather been here preaching, <laughs> standing barefoot on hot coals, <laughs> naked, but I wasn't. I was up in Canada, and so uh, I don't, haven't listened to Dave's message yet, but I'm sure it was good, and if it wasn't, I'll let you know next week. But we're back in John chapter 17, and when we were together last time, we had just started this section, verses 13 through verse 19, which is the sort of the, the last bit of the second division of the Lord's Prayer for His people. And so we're going to be picking it up in verse 13 and going down through verse 19. We're going to read that together. And as we do, I would just remind you of the outline that I offered to you uh, for this passage. The main concern of the Lord is that His disciples, His people, are being left in the world. That was His concern. And rightly so, because the world is a hateful and hostile place. And He was leaving His disciples there, so He's praying for them, and by, by extension, he is also praying for all of us who are still left in this world as well. And though we are left in this world, we see some of the things that the Lord has done, the Lord has provided for his people for our mission in the world. And I offer to you four things in verses 13 through verse 19. First, that He has, we are supplied, we are a supplied people. He's given to us his joy and his word, that's verses 13 and 14. He has secured us, that's verses 15 and 16. He sanctifies us, verse 17, and then he has sent us into the world, verses 18 and 19. So those are the four points as we work our way through this, and we're taking them one by one. Uh, That would have made a great four-point sermon, one sermon, verses 13 and 19, but my motto is, why preach one sermon when four will do? So we're taking each one of these uh, individually, one sermon at a time. Beginning in verse 13, let's read together. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. You notice the repetition of the word world there is repeated nine times in that short passage. And this is the Lord's concern of what he has done for and given to his people who are left in the world. So last time we were together, we covered verses 13 and 14. We are a supplied people. He has supplied us with his joy, and he has supplied us with his word. 
And those two things are sufficient to equip us for living in this world without the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we're looking at how he has secured us in verses 15 and 16, how he has secured us. So verse 15 has a negative prayer, and I want you to notice it, a negative aspect to the prayer and a positive aspect to the prayer. Here's the negative aspect, verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, and here's the positive aspect, but to keep them from the evil one. Then you'll notice that verse 16 is a repetition of verse 14. We'll get to that in just a moment. So the prayer in verse 15 has a negative side and a positive side. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but instead the positive request, but that you keep them from the evil one. And we could, there's kind of a bit of a wordplay. If I were more clever, I would come up with a way of working this into the outline, so I'm just going to let you know about it. We are kept in this world in two senses. We are kept in this world in two senses. Number one, in the sense that we remain here, he keeps us here instead of taking us out. And second, in the sense that we are protected here while we are here. He keeps us here in the sense that we remain here, and he keeps us here in the sense that we are protected while we remain here. And so that kind of covers the two aspects, the two uh, the, the two sides of that, the positive and the negative. Negatively, we remain here. He left us here for a purpose and a reason. We're going to look at what that is today. And then second, he keeps us or protects us or watches over us even while we're in this world. So we'll deal first of all with the negative aspect, the negative prayer, that he does not pray that we should be taken out of the world. Verse 15 again. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. This is what the Lord was specifically saying that he was not asking for. And it seems appropriate that he would make this request in light of everything that he said. But at the same time, this seems to be, in light of everything that he said, the opposite of what we'd expect him to pray. We would expect him to pray, in light of everything he said, we would expect him to pray, Lord, take them out of the world just as I am leaving the world, bring them along with me. I mean, consider this, he has already told the disciples that he was leaving them, And the the goal of his leaving was that they would eventually be with him. Look at verse 24 of this same chapter. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Ultimately, the goal of what he all that he has done for us is that we would be with him and be with him for eternity. So he has gone away to prepare a place for us. He has promised that he will come again and receive us unto himself. That is the end goal of all that he has done. And so he is preparing a place, we have a place, he wants us to be with him. And then second, he has told us that this world is filled with tribulations and trials and temptations, and that we ought to expect the hatred of the world. Remember back in chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, the world will hate you. If they hated me, they will also hate you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. The world would love its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world for this reason, the world hates us. And so he has told the disciples that the world is going to hate them, the world is going to oppose them, oppose their message, hate everything that they stand for, hate everything that they love, seek to undo them and destroy them. That's the promise. And then he has told us that we are not of the world. That's in verse 14. He told us in verse 14, or he prays in verse 14, that we are not of the world, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then look at verse 16, it's repeated. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Why does he repeat that? Once in verse 14 and once in verse 16. It is because sandwiched between those two affirmations that we are not of this world is this prayer that we be kept in the world. And it's almost as if the Lord is reminding us again that though He is not praying for us to be taken out, though He is praying that we would remain here for the time that we are here, that is not because we are of this world or we have anything in common with this world or that we belong to this world. In fact, the opposite is quite the case. 
By virtue of the gospel and by virtue of all that Christ has done for us, we can honestly say that we have no affinity for, we have no connection to this world. And though we are here and we do business here and we have family here and our our jobs are here and our houses are here and all the physical things that we enjoy are here, really we are not tied to this world. And in one sense, we are no more, we no more belong to this world than the Lord Jesus Christ belongs to this world. Because he's chosen us out of it. He has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his son. Our inheritance is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our name is written in heaven. Everything that we cherish, everything that we long for, everything that is that is of eternal and lasting value for us is not even in this world, but in the world which is to come. And so we're not of this world. Now, in light of the fact that he has told us that he's going away to prepare a place for us and that the world is going to hate us and be hostile toward us and that we are not of this world any more than he is of this world, it would seem the most natural thing for him to pray would be, Lord, take them out of the world just as you're taking me out of the world. But that's not what he prays. Instead, he prays that we would be left in the world and that we would remain here. In fact, he specifically says in verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We might expect him to pray that we would leave and go to be with him. After all, that's the whole goal of why he came, to save a people for himself and to take them to glory with him. But where would we be today if on the day that Christ rose again, he ascended to heaven and took the twelve with him or the eleven with him? We wouldn't have the New Testament. Would you be here? We would know nothing. We would know nothing of the historical redemptive plan of God or of the grace of God in salvation. So it was to our good that he left the twelve here, and it is also to our good that he leaves us here. There are two ways in which Christians can be taken out of the world. Christians can be taken out of the world by isolation. And this seems to be a tendency among some, and it has been a tendency in history that Christians sort of isolate themselves from the world. This was Actually, the expression or the intention of the whole monastic movement, the monasteries and the monks and an isolation from the world, uh, the monastic movement of isolating themselves into cloisters out in the wilderness away from the world was kind of a response to the, the worldliness creeping into the church. When Constantine, the emperor of Rome, issued the Edict of Toleration in 313 A.D., it was not long. I mean, overnight, Christianity went from a religio illicita, from an illicit and illegal religion, to the fashionable thing to do. When not only was the emperor Christian, but he expected all of his advisors to be Christian and senators and everybody else, Christianity was not only a legal religion, but the fashionable religion, the in religion. And so consequently, everybody began to adopt Christianity as the official religion, whether they were believers or not. And it wasn't even a decade later that Constantine himself, the emperor of Rome, began to muddle in church affairs, trying to influence the decision of church councils and theological disputes within his own empire. And so as a result of of uh, the church being persecuted for almost 300 years, the church was very pure and there was not a lot of worldliness. You didn't have Joel Osteen type churches in the early church. You know why? Because if persecution struck America, like persecution struck the Christians in first century uh, Israel, there would be no Joel Osteen church. People don't show up who want to play church and hear a message like that. Only serious believers show up for church when showing up for church could be in essence be signing your own death warrant. And so the church, consequently, was very pure. But when Christianity went from being an illegal religion to the in-religion, worldliness began to creep into the church. And so the response of, of pious and righteous Christians, the initial response was to withdraw from that and to, to step away from it, thinking that if they removed themselves from the world, they could remain more pure and more holy. And so they formed monasteries, and monks went off, and nuns, and you had nunneries, or whatever you call those things where the, the nuns go, the monks and the monasteries... And historically, we know that as a result of that, Christians leaving the world and going out and and living together in little communes, some of those 
monasteries participated in sins more vile than anything practiced in the world. What do you think you get when you take a bunch of men who have trouble suppressing their lusts and put them together out in the wilderness all alone? You get exactly what you would expect to get. Because like Colossians chapter 2 says, they wrongly thought that these disciplines of the body were of some, in, some, some value against the indulgences of the flesh. And they were all wrong. And see, that whole monastic movement, the whole idea of isolating ourselves from culture and from the world and standing afar off and, and touching not the world, in a sense, we don't touch the unclean things. We do come out from among them. But in another sense, we are to be in the world. And, the, and that whole response to the worldliness in the church of trying to withdraw from the world, it had the opposite of the intended effect. It made for a very worldly people out in the wilderness instead of a righteous people living amongst the world doing what they should have been doing. And that whole idea of isolating yourself from the world is a denial of this very verse, is it not? Didn't Jesus say, I do not ask you to take them out of the world? He wasn't asking the Father to isolate them and to remove them off into some commune out in the wilderness where only Christians dwelt. That that wasn't the Father's goal. It was His goal that we stay in the world and that we live in the world. And He didn't pray that we would be taken out of the world. It also denies the the, the whole doctrine of human human depravity. Do you, you understand that Thinking that you can become pure and holy by isolating yourself from the world fails to recognize where the biggest source of your problem lies. Is it external to us? It's internal, right? And when I go off into a, a monastery or a commune to be all by myself and to live with people who, who want to live like me out in an area like that, guess what I bring with me? Me. And that's the fundamental problem. That's the sinfulness. That's where the flesh, that's where the flesh lies, or that's what the, where the flesh flourishes is in environments like that. And thinking that you can be holy by just abandoning the world and walking away from the battle. Listen, friends, holiness is not demonstrated when we abandon the battle. Holiness is demonstrated when we win the battle. When we stand in the midst of the world and remain untouched by it. And holy and pure and useful and unspotted by the worldly influence. That's where holiness is displayed. Holiness is displayed by being holy at work, surrounded by unbelievers, and being holy and in an environment where there are non-believers and you're visiting and you're having interaction with them, holiness is demonstrated in the world. That's the Lord's intention. We would be holy in the world, and that's where the battle is won and made victorious. That's where we are made victorious, is by our faith, overcoming the world, not abandoning the world. A second way that Christians become uh, are taken out of the world is not only by isolation, but also by death. And Jesus is obviously not praying that the disciples would die. You see, you can be taken out of the world by isolating yourself from the world and the world system. You're not going to be able to take the world out of you, but you can take you out of the world. Or you can be removed from the world by means of death. Interestingly, there are three men in Scripture who all prayed to die before their time. Now, all three of these men were godly men, righteous men in their own generation, men whom God loved, men whom God called, and men whom God equipped for ministry. Three righteous men who all prayed for death. Can you think of who they are? I'll give you just a second. See if you can. The first one is Moses. In Numbers chapter 11, Moses prayed this, So if you're going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. If I have found favor in your sight, do not let me see my wretchedness. If, you have, if you're going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once if I found favor in your sight. Isn't that, a, isn't that an odd prayer? Lord, if you really love me, kill me. Lord, if you're really going to be gracious to me, take my life. And the Lord didn't answer that prayer. The second one he prayed it is Elijah. You remember Elijah after the whole incident with the, the prophets? 1 Kings 19, verse 4 says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, 
It is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I'm not better than my father's. And the third one who asked to die, do you think of this one? It was Jonah. Remember Jonah? Jonah chapter 4, verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. Death is better to me than life. In Jonah 4, verse 8, when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Now in all three of those instances, three godly righteous men whom God called, God equipped, and God used in their own generation, those three men reached points where they wanted to leave and die rather than stay and stand. And in how many of those instances did God grant the request? Not one of them. Not one of them. Sometimes as Christians, we can begin to feel the very same way. I want to get out of here. Right? I would just rather die than stay here. Has anybody had that sentiment ever in your life? Lord, take me. Sometimes as Christians, we can long for death and long for the Father's presence because we definitely want to be with the Savior. Like Paul, who said, to depart and be with Christ is far better. Yet for your sakes, I'll remain on in the flesh. And there Paul had a desire to go and to be with Christ because he saw that as far better for him than to stay with the Philippians. But it was far better for the Philippians for him to stay with them than for him to go and to be with Christ. So there, there's a righteous longing there that we have as Christians to go and to be with the Lord and to die and to just leave all of this behind. And as we progress in life and in sanctification, hopefully that desire grows stronger and stronger. But sometimes as Christians, our desire to die and to leave this life is nothing more than an expression of our own selfishness and laziness. Charles Spurgeon said this, Christians always want to die when they have trouble or trial. They want to get home, not so much for the Savior's company, as to get out of a little hard work. They did not wish to go away when they were in quiet and prosperity, but like lazy fellows, as most of us are, when we get into a little labor, we beg to go home. End quote. That's insightful, isn't it? When things are good, if you had all the money that Donald Trump has and all the ease and pleasures that your mind could possibly conjure up, would you really want to leave this earth and go to be with the Lord? Well, that's a, that's a question to test your sanctification. But the reality is when things are easy and quiet and prosperous, we don't long to be, to go home. We never beg for something like that. But like lazy fellows, as Spurgeon says, like lazy fellows that we sometimes are, when we desire to go home, it's often because we just want to avoid a little bit of work. Interestingly about Spurgeon, Spurgeon preached four sermons on verse 15. Not in a row, mind you. <laughs> That would be more like what I would be inclined to do. But Spurgeon spread this out over the course of his whole life and ministry. And I read all four of the sermons on verse 15, and all four of them are different. And if you like Spurgeon's sermons, I would, I would commend all four of those messages to you. Each one handles the text a little bit differently, and he does a great job of it. And so uh, it's my practice that whenever I preach on a text, I read what Spurgeon wrote on it. Because I like Spurgeon's writings, and I want to get in the habit of reading his stuff uh, continually week by week, so I always read what Spurgeon says, and then... It's also good for good quotes, because Spurgeon was a wordsmith. So I've got a few Spurgeon quotes before we're done here today. So if the Lord leaves us here, then it is obviously for good reason. Do you think if the, if the Lord prayed that we would not be taken out of this world, either by death or by isolation, if the Lord prayed that we would not be taken out of this world, then it can only be because He intends some good to come of it. Do you think the Lord would pray something for you or for these 11 men that was not for their ultimate good? Do you think he would pray something for these men that was not ultimately an expression of his love for them? The fact that the Lord prayed this, that we would remain here in this world, the fact that he prayed this indicates to me that he had very good reason to pray this. And it is, and I can offer to you three of them. I can think of a whole bunch of reasons why we're here, but I sort of put them all under these three headings. It is good for the world, it is good for us, and it is for the glory of God. 
Every reason that I could think of why the Lord would leave us here, from Scripture, from experience, just practical things, all of them fall under those three headings. It is good for the world, it is good for us, and it's for the glory of God. So let me give you a few a few items under each one of those headings. It is good for the world for us to be here. It is good for others. Because we are here, because we are here, the world sees the drama of redemption being played out in the life of a believer. The world, the church is for the world a, a salt in a corrupt environment, a light in a dark world. Because the church exists here, the church restrains sin. The church, by the preaching of the word and by standing for truth and by witnessing to unbelievers, there is a sense in which the church, the, the Holy Spirit through the church, is a restraining influence on the evil of this world. Do you want to know what the world would be really like, how horrible it would really be? Imagine if all Christians at a moment were taken out of the world. The unleashing of evil. The unleashing of darkness on a world under those circumstances is almost unimaginable. But while the church is here, we are salt, we are light, we are a preserving influence, we are a lighting influence for them, and though the world hates our testimony, our testimony is good for the world. Though the world hates us, we are good for the world. Think of all the good that Christians do for the poor, for the afflicted, for the persecuted, for the downcast, and for the grieving as a result of Christians being in this world. Think of how fewer hospitals would exist, how fewer... Uh, uh, services and, and social services would exist if not for Christians. We have a tremendous influence of grace in the world, and it is good for unbelievers that God leaves Christians here. But it is also good for us. Because of our time in the world, our hunger for heaven is sharpened, and as you grow in grace, I hope that this becomes more and more a longing to be out of this world and with the Lord Jesus Christ, not a longing to avoid the, not a longing to avoid the work, not a longing to avoid the toil or the trials or the temptations, but a longing to honestly be with the Lord Jesus Christ in glory, free from your own sin. That's what our longing should be. And so while we are in this world, and because of being in this world, our hunger for heaven is increased, and I think immeasurably. Not only that, but our enjoyment of heaven, our enjoyment of heaven will be increased because of our time and experiences here on this earth. Again, I quote Spurgeon, A little stay on earth will make heaven all the sweeter. Nothing makes rest so sweet as toil. Nothing can render security so pleasant as a long exposure to alarms and fears and battles. No heaven will be as sweet as a heaven which has been preceded by torments and pains. I think the deeper draughts of woe we drink here below, the sweeter will be those draughts of eternal glory which we shall receive from the golden bowls of bliss. End quote. It was well stated. The worse your time here, the more pleasant heaven will be, right? I went fishing off the coast of Vancouver one time. Little did I know how seasick I would get as a result of being out on the boat for eight hours. And I got seasick. And when I say sick, I mean, I mean, I was praying for death sick. I thought of jumping overboard sick. Just, I was that sick. But I never appreciated land like when I got back after being so sick and I stepped out on the land and it was solid. It didn't move. How glorious that was. The seasickness almost instantly vanished. Nothing will make heaven so sweet as the trials and tribulations and persecutions and hatred and hostility that the world has to offer to us. Our, our enjoyment of eternal glory will be better because we have been left here for a period of time. Our hunger for heaven and our enjoyment of heaven. Again, Spurgeon writes this, The more trials, the more bliss. The more sufferings, the more ecstasies. The more depression, the higher the exaltation. Thus we shall gain more of heaven by the sufferings we pass through here below. Us being here is better for us. It, it creates in us a longing for heaven. It, it, creates, it creates more joys for us in heaven and more delights for us in heaven. And not only that, but our time spent here in fighting against the world prepares us for eternal glory. 
Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, listen, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And what is Paul saying to Timothy? In disciplining yourself for godliness, there is benefit in this life, yes. But the disciplining yourself for godliness holds promise for the life to come. In other words, our fighting against sin and our disciplining ourselves and pursuing godliness here has some sort of an impact on the life that is to come. And as we pursue holiness here, something is happening in the development of ourselves, our own souls and our own sanctification to better prepare us for the glories of heaven. That is why the Lord leaves you here. It's good for the world. It's good for you. And it's also for the glory of God. God is glorified when He displays to a watching world and to the angels and to all the saints how He can take a sinner like you and like me and turn them around and give them a new affection so that that sinner is ready and willing to renounce all that the world has to offer and to pursue its greater love, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. When that sinner who has been saved then perseveres through those trials and is kept all the way through that path for the glory that is to come, God is glorified by that. We think more of the captain of a vessel who takes his his boat through stormy waters and comes near to death and guides it safely through to a safe shore. We think more of that captain than the captain whose abilities and skills have never been tested and tried and never been put on display because all he has ever sailed in is, is, is clear and safe waters. And so it is with the captain of our salvation that he takes every one of us and he charts us through this stormy life, through the hostilities and hatreds of this world and all of its temptations and trials, persecutions and perils, and he brings us safely to the other shore. And he does that with each and every individual whom the Father has given to him. That is for his glory. His glory is displayed by saving sinners in this world and then by leaving those sinners in this world and demonstrating to the world that he keeps and preserves and sanctifies and makes holy and pure those same people whom he has saved. And then the grace of God is put on display in trials. Again, Spurgeon, and this is my last one, four quotes quotes for four sermons from Spurgeon. Spurgeon writes this, A tried saint brings more glory to God than an untried one. I do verily think in my own soul that a believer in a dungeon reflects more glory on his master than a believer in paradise. I believe that a child of God in the burning fiery furnace, whose hair is yet unscorched and upon whom the smell of fire has not passed, displays more of the glory of the Godhead than even he who stands with a crown upon his head, perpetually singing praises before the eternal throne. End quote. God is glorified through your trials and through your sufferings, through your persecutions, through your afflictions, through every moment that you are here. If indeed you persevere and work and serve and strive to be a glory to the God who has left you here. So why has God left us here? For the world's good, for our good, and for his glory. He's accomplishing all of those things. That is why the Savior said, I do not pray that you take them out of the world. That would not have been for our good. That would not have been for the world's good. And it would not have been for the glory of God. Now let's look at the positive aspect of this. Verse 15. Again, this is the end of the, the second half of verse 15. I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you to keep them from the evil one, to keep them from the evil one. The word one is in italics in the new, newer translations like the NASB. The King James just renders it uh, evil, that you would keep them from the evil. The word keep there means to preserve or to watch over, to guard and to protect. And so the Lord Jesus is praying that his people remain here, that they be kept here, but that they be kept while they're kept here, kept in the sense of being protected and watched over. And the King James translates it that you might be, that you might protect them from evil. 
leaving it kind of generic, as in protecting from iniquities or the influences of the world or sins or uh, any kind of, uh, of, of wretchedness or evil. It's kind of a general term or taken that way as a general term. All the modern translations translate it evil one, that you maybe keep them from the evil one, meaning Satan. Now, here's the interesting thing. It could be translated either way. It could be translated as evil one, and at sometimes that same word is translated evil one in other passages of Scripture, or it can just be used to refer to evil in its very generic sense of meaning all kinds of evil or wickedness or corruptions in this world. So it is true both ways as well. It is true that though we, that while we are saved and we are left in this world, that the Lord does protect us and keep us from the evil one. We read that in 1 John chapter 5, where the evil one does not touch us. In other words, we've been delivered from his kingdom. We're no longer his children. We're no longer under his dominion. We no longer serve him as our master like we once did. But in another sense, he also keeps us from evil in that God works to preserve and keep his people from iniquity and to keep them all the way through this life. doesn't mean that we don't fall into sin. doesn't mean that we don't sin occasionally. But it does mean that he keeps us from a perpetual and habitual bondage to sin while we are in this life. Those who are the Lord's are kept from the evil one and they are kept from evil. And this makes us to recognize that there are various forms of evil from which we are kept. We are kept from the evil one, but we're also kept from various forms of evil. We're kept from the evil of Satan. We're also preserved and kept by this uh, from the evils of this world. But there's another evil that we need to be delivered from, and that's the evil of our own hearts. That's the work of the flesh. We are kept from the evil of Satan, of this world, and of the flesh. And God is at work preserving and keeping his people through all of those various forms of evil and from all of those various forms of evil. There's a sense in which this is a very appropriate prayer, and I think one that we can pray. This is something we should pray for ourselves and pray for our children. Lord, keep them from evil. As long as they're going to be in this world, keep them from evil. You say, well, my children are adults and they're married and have their own kids. You still should pray for this. Pray that the God would keep you from evil, keep me from evil, keep us from evil as a church. Keep your children from evil. Keep your grandchildren from evil. That should be our desire and our prayer. Now, if it is the Lord's will that he keep us from evil, then it is, it is, it is appropriate that we should pray that God would keep us from evil, and that we would constantly appeal to him for this very thing. I pray often that, my, that God would sanctify my children by the truth and that he would guard them from evil and he would give them a hatred for sin and a love for righteousness and a hatred for sin in its every form because those are the means by which God keeps his people from evil. To give us a hatred for sin, that is appropriate, and to give us a love for righteousness and to increase our love for righteousness. And so he prays not that they would be taken out, but that while they are here, while they are kept here, that they would be kept and protected even in the midst of an evil and wicked and perverse generation. Evil has a way of destroying the very reason why we are here. It is appropriate that he should pray that we be kept from evil because evil will keep us from fulfilling the commission that he has given to us to do. When we fall into temptation or trials, when we stumble and fall and we blaspheme God's name by sinning in some way, even some way that is public, that has a way of undoing in an immense sense, all of the good that we might have done. It has a way of bringing, uh, besmirching the name of Christ and, and not giving him glory. And we ought to seek in all things to give him glory. And so if our desire is to glorify God and to be good to the world and for our good, then we ought to pray as Jesus prayed that he would keep us from evil and that he would keep us from the evil one. Either one of those is an appropriate prayer. Now we're talking about the sovereignty of God in these things, and we've seen this in John 17, and we affirm that God is sovereign in the one as the one who keeps us from evil. We recognize that this is the Father's will, that this is the Son's prayer, that the Father would keep those whom the Father has given to the Son, that the Father would keep them, and that he would keep them in 
in purity and in holiness and preserve them while they're left in this world and that he might guard them and protect them from evil and from the evil one. God is sovereign in all of this, but the sovereignty of God in these things, in these glorious passages that we've been discussing, does not in any way negate human responsibility or the means that God has appointed to accomplish these ends. And I think Dave talked about the sovereignty of God in sin last week, so I don't know if I'm I'm going over material that he already covered. But just because we affirm that God is the one who sovereignly keeps to the very end all those for whom the, all those whom the Father gave to the Son and for whom the Son died, we affirm the sovereignty of God in that. That does not negate our responsibility in these matters. That is why we find in Scripture warnings about sin, that sin is crouching at our door, that we must mortify sin and that we must stay away from it, that we should love not the world or the things in the world. This is why in Scripture we have all the various commands to have nothing to do with the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather to expose them, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called, to take off the old man and put on the new man, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to put on the armor of God, to stand in the evil day, to hold forth the light of truth, to preach the word, to pursue holiness without no, which no one will see the Lord, to sanctify ourselves, to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. All of these commands that we are, are given, these are the means by which God accomplishes the end of preserving and keeping his people. In other words, when I pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord, I am pursuing the end that God has ordained through the means that God has ordained. And so it is a perversion and a treacherous and blasphemous doctrine to think that the sovereignty of God in these matters excuses me from all of my duties and that I don't have to do anything because after all, I'm going to be kept. So I don't have to persevere. I don't have to continue. I don't have to pursue sanctification. I don't have to care about anything. Because after all, if God has loved me, and if He has chosen me, and if He has died for me, and if He has saved me, then He's going to keep me so I don't have to do anything. That is a perversion of these glorious doctrines. That is a perversion of the truth. God accomplishes His ends through the God-ordained means. And in fact... The fact that God has willed this and that Christ has prayed it and that Christ has purposed it and that Christ has promised it is the assurance that I have that my efforts towards those ends will not be in vain. And so I can pursue what I know God has guaranteed for me. And the preservation and the, and the guarantee of these things is in fact the incentive by which we pursue God. And He is glorified in this. So why has the Lord left us here? For the good of His people, for the good of the world, and for his own glory. And so now the question is, will you live for the glory of God while you are here? Do you understand the reason God has left you here is that you would be a Daniel in the midst of Babylon? That you would live in a world that is absolutely corrupt and falling apart, that is perverse in its every desire, its every design, and its, and its every intention. That is the world in which we live. And it's getting, it seems to be getting worse. I don't know if it's getting worse or not, but it seems to be slapping us in the face ever more frequently. And so God's design is for us to be like Daniel and Babylon, like the saints in Nero's household, to live in a world surrounded by corruption, surrounded by wickedness, not to abandon our post and to abandon the battle, but instead to pursue holiness and to stand and have victory over the very things that will one day perish while we are in the eternal kingdom. That is what God has called us to do. And you say, Jim, that's impossible. I can't live in a world like that. Well, not if you bow to the winds of political correctness. Not if you bow the knee to cultural conformity. Not if you're involved in wickedness or, or, or compromise and not if you're sinning and not if you refuse to stand. Then no, if you abandon the world, 
then you won't live like that. You won't be a light in the midst of darkness. But this is what God has called us to do. And so we live in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, shining, holding forth the word of truth and shining like children of light. That is why God has called us to this. That is why God has left us here. And if it weren't for your good, and if it weren't for the world's good, and it weren't for the glory of God, he would take you out of here. It is not due to any lack of his power that we stay here. It's not because he can't take us home. It's because he has a reason for leaving us here. And so let's get about that very thing. The good of the world, the good of his people, and the glory of God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that in your eternal plan you have purposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling through us, that you are the one who works in us to will and to do those things which please you, and that you have left us here to work those things out. We, we thank you for that. We thank you that you have not taken us out of this world, and we pray that you would um, never let us fall temp- pray to the temptation or give in to the temptation to abandon this world, to abandon the fight of the battle, but that you would give us grace to be victorious over this world and give us the grace to stand and to be useful and pure children of light in the midst of a a world that seems to grow darker with each passing day. These are your purposes. These are the things that you have left us here to do, and we pray that you would give us the grace to accomplish them and to be faithful to you in the midst of our generation, Uh, that we would be men and women like Spurgeon and others who have gone before, who have not bowed the knee to the world, the world system, to political correctness or cultural conformity, but men and women who stand for the truth, that we might honor the truth and show our love for truth and for the God of truth. Sanctify us to that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.